welcome, uh, everybody. So today, uh, for, for those of you who are new, I'm Charles Small, the director of ESA, the Initiative for the Interdisciplinary Study of Anti-Semitism. So today, we're honored to have Professor Walter Wright here. Walter is the Yitzhak Rabin Memorial Professor of International Relations, sorry, International Affairs, Ethics, and Human Behavior. He was appointed at George Washington University's newly endowed Itzhak Rabin Memorial Chair in uh, the Elliott School of International Affairs in 1998. From 1995 to 1998, he was the director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. He is also a senior scholar at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, a clinical professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at George Washington University, a lecturer in psychology here at Yale University, and um, he's also a professor of psychiatry at Uniform Services University of Health Sciences. He's the author of a book entitled A Stranger in My House, Jews and Arabs in the West Bank, and the editor of The Origins of Terrorism, Psychologies, Ideologies, Theologies, States of Mind, and has written professionally for journals internationally, some of which are the New York Times, the Atlantic Monthly, and the New Republic. Today he's speaking, um, his title, I'll read you his title in a minute, it's a provocative and I think a very important title. The title is Never Again, question mark, when Holocaust memory becomes empty rhetoric, diplomatic tool, and a weapon against Israel. So, thank you very much, it's an honor to have you and welcome. much more an honor uh, for me to be here. Um, and it's an honor for me to be here because um, if, I, if Charles had made the error, uh, as I just told him, of asking me, do you think there could be such uh, an organization, um, an initiative set up at Yale, given the fact that you know Yale? Um, I would say, no, don't even try. Uh, and I'm absolutely delighted that he didn't ask me. I'm absolutely delighted that he did it. And the very fact that this program exists, and the very fact that you're here, and the very fact that many, many others know about it, uh, as a result of uh, this marvelous thing we have called the Internet, um, is all thanks to Charles Smalls. He's the one who deserves the, uh, the applause. Um, I, um, there's, a, there's another dimension to my being here that makes me uh, quite, quite happy. Uh, two of my kids, um, thanks, Excellency. Two of my children studied here. Um, one went to that other drunk up in Cambridge. Um, one of them was born here when I was a resident in psychiatry. And, um, and I've been here many times, and it feels very much uh, like a home. Um, I actually prefer the give and take uh, questions and answers to just reading a lecture. Uh, one of the things that Charles did was to say, look, you know, some of these lectures will end up 
in a book, and so uh, it would be nice if you could prepare uh, something written, which always freezes the heart of anybody who's busy. And uh, I therefore sat down and did indeed write something, and will base what I say um, uh, largely on that, but hope that we can um, go on to have questions and, and answers uh, or an exchange of views. Um, so why a lecture related to the Holocaust, which has the theme of the Holocaust or the Shoah at the center of it in a, in a, in a series uh, on anti-Semitism? For some it's obvious, for others uh, there may be questions. Um, the Holocaust was the greatest physical outburst of anti-Semitism the Jews had ever known in a long history of such outbursts. Indeed, the Holocaust was the most striking and focused physical outburst of any ethnic hatred the world has ever known. Any aspect of the study of the Holocaust and the use and abuse of Holocaust memory has a direct bearing on the consideration of anti-Semitism in general. And it has a direct bearing on the consideration of not only ethnic hatred, but also the possibilities and uses of its memorialization. My talk today will focus on the use, often only when it's convenient, of the bold and stirring and bracing call, never again, in the realm of international affairs. It will also focus on the ways in which countries use Holocaust symbols to achieve diplomatic ends. And it will focus on ways in which Holocaust imagery is hurled at Israel in order to attack it and Jews, as well as the ways in which Holocaust denial, a malady that has afflicted the world for 60 years, has become in recent years wildly popular in the Arab Muslim world. Um, and it's become even central to the domestic and the foreign policy of one country, as you, as many of you know, um, probably I'm sure all of you, Iran. That this phenomenon has taken place is well known, um, uh, but was highlighted, uh, especially during the, uh, the visit by Mahmoud Ahmadinejad uh, to this country. So let me first address the issue of the rhetoric and the reality of the foreign policy lessons of the Holocaust. And I put the phrase lessons of the Holocaust in quotes um, because it's a widely used phrase, um, almost never defined and almost never, and I would say never tested. Um, uh, is it in reality never again? which is one of those lessons? Or is it in practice always again? And do things that are resonant of the Holocaust keep on happening anyway, even though we keep on saying never again? Probably the main reason that the Holocaust is invoked regularly by leaders in connection with foreign policy matters is that it's designated as a kind of moral touchstone in connection with such matters. Just about everyone publicly acknowledges 
at least in the West, that the international community made a grave moral error in not intervening in the 1930s when Hitler promised to exterminate the Jews and then spent years squeezing them, pounding them, and finally killing them. During the 1930s, at least, countries could have intervened to stop that process, and they didn't. At the very least, they could have taken in the Jews, who, because they weren't taken in, were later murdered. As a result, everyone, at least in the West, expresses shame that no such interventions were attempted when they could still have been attempted. So, when mass killings are taking place in the world, the Holocaust is, is sometimes cited as a justification for intervention. The problem is that the citations of the Holocaust are selective and aren't necessarily based on the degree to which the crisis in response to which intervention is being proposed is similar to the Holocaust. For example, to justify the intervention in Kosovo, President Clinton summed up the Holocaust. But he didn't do that in connection with a far more extensive and genuine uh, genocide, one that really did reach proportions that were comparable in severity and intent, if not in numbers and methods, to the Holocaust, namely the genocide in Rwanda. To be sure, President Bush did indeed utter the motto, um, never again, during his visit to the Holocaust Museum in Washington in April of 2007, where he devoted most of his talk to the murders in Darfur. It's worth noting that although he didn't say that the situation in Darfur was the same as the Holocaust, the setting in which he spoke was designed to add historical gravity to his presentation. Alas, what the U.S. is actually doing in Darfur has yet to match that gravity as the killing continues to unfold. Let me be a little more specific on this matter. Let me focus on Rwanda, which is very different from, from Darfur. I don't want to to um, amalgamate all of these, because um, each case is, has its own characteristics uh, and its own analogies. Um, so let me focus on Rwanda, and in particular on the rhetoric of never again, that our officials don't hesitate to utter when it costs nothing or little to utter it, and on the ways in which they refuse to act on that sentiment when such action is in fact seen as inconvenient or costly. So I want to focus down on the Rwanda case uh, in dealing with this matter. In 2005, the international commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz was attended by leaders from around the world. The UN held one such commemoration. Others were held in many other countries. The vow never again was articulated by, I think, nearly all of them. Unfortunately, this vow, which has been articulated, as I've said, for decades, hasn't managed in all those decades to mobilize the actions, either national or international, that have been needed when real genocides have occurred. Um, and Rwanda is indeed one of them, 800,000. Human beings, nearly all of them, Tutsis, were murdered, mostly by being hacked to death with machetes by Hutu militias. During the months this genocide unfolded, State Department and other Clinton administration officials at the highest levels wouldn't follow the genocide. They were afraid that doing so 
would commit the United States, as an internal State Department memo put it, to, quote, actually do something. In the year 2000, a member of a panel established by the Organization of African Unity to study the event and then on response to it said at a press conference, and I'm quoting here, the United States knew exactly what was going on. I don't know how Madeleine Albright lives with it. Well, it's rare to see somebody get, somebody get personal in international affairs. It's rare in, in, in rhetoric related or, or, or statements regarding international affairs. And this guy, the Canadian, got very personal. I don't know how she lives with it. Because she was, um, at that time, ambassador to the UN, Madeleine Albright. And, um, and she responded to that statement. And she said, and she, and she was opposing uh, res uh, responses to it, to, to genocide. Remember this thing, this, 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 this catastrophe unfolded over a period of something like three months. So it wasn't an overnight matter. And it was clear from the other beginning what was happening. She responded with the following phrase, which you may find resonant. She said, I was just following instructions. Secretary of State Warren Christopher, these are not bad people. Secretary of State Warren Christopher and President Clinton knew exactly what was happening. But it was in fact their unwillingness to act that set the tone for Albright's behavior. She was following instructions. In 1998, Clinton apologized in Kigali um, at the airport when he addressed the survivors of the genocide and others for his behavior. It's worth recalling, again, against the background of uh, Clinton's inaction in the case of Rwanda, what he'd said just a year before that. Remember, this is the genocide took place in 1994, and here he Here's what he said at the opening in March of 1993, um, at, at the opening of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, when he expressed sorrow that before World War II had started, quote, doors to liberty were shut. And it's worth noting his words at an international Holocaust conference in the year 2000, in which he said, quote, we must never forget what happened when governments turned a blind eye to grave injustice outside their borders when they waited too long to act. For his part, Secretary of State Warren Christopher uh, grudgingly acknowledged that what was happening in Rwanda when he was pushed to acknowledge it were, quote, acts of genocide. He was a lawyer. Um, but we're not speaking at all so um, I recall that two years after the Rwanda genocide, in 1996, at an exhibit mounted by the Holocaust Museum on Capitol Hill about Varian Fry, uh, was a great man who uh, in southern France saved about 2,000 human beings from the Holocaust, even as State Department officials tried to stop him. Um, Christopher spoke with great feeling. I could sense that feeling because I was standing next to him as the museum's director. And he said, frankly, the conduct of our department was not our finest hour. Five months earlier, at Yad Vashem, 
Israel's Holocaust Memorial, um, at which he had planted a tree in honor of Baron Fry. Christopher had said that we owe Fry, quote, a promise to do whatever is necessary to ensure that such horrors never happen again. So if never again was in their hearts, why didn't Christopher or Clinton or Albright do what they could when they had a chance to do it to stop that particular genocide war? They didn't do it because, unfortunately, doing so would have had a cost. No one wanted a repeat of the peacekeeping debacle that had occurred in Somalia six months earlier. Officials assumed that somehow things would settle down and they focused their attention elsewhere. At the UN's commemoration of the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, Kofi Annan, then the UN Secretary General, announced, quote, on occasions like this, rhetoric comes easily. He went on, we rightly say never again, but action is much harder. Since the Holocaust, the world has to its shame failed more than once to prevent or halt genocide. Close quote. Yet Arnaud himself, who knew all this back in 1994, responded rather weakly to that genocide. Let me turn to the problem uh, of the fact that the Holocaust is used as a tool to promote the variety of genders. Um, I've already touched on a version of that in connection with President Clinton's use of Holocaust imagery and his effort to justify a military intervention in Kosovo. But there's also another, which by the way, uh, was not a Holocaust, um, was not a genocide in my judgment and in the judgments of many of the people who've thought about <coughs> but the Holocaust was quite frankly set up uh, as a justification, referred to as justification for military intervention. I think at a time when it was, such intervention was politically possible, militarily possible, um, of interest, uh, and did, without the downsides of uh, other events that were much more classically genocides. But there's also another and very different way of using the Holocaust for diplomatic ends. In this other kind of use, the Holocaust is manipulated by a government in order to sway public opinion, especially opinion among Jews, by trying to show that someone whom they see as hostile to them and their interests is actually their friend a friend who can be trusted, and that he can be trusted because he truly feels the pain of the Holocaust and therefore presumably would never harm the Jews. That's what happened in 1998 when the White House and the State Department tried to manipulate American public opinion, especially the opinion of American Jews, um, about the trustworthiness of Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian leader. They tried to do that by setting up a photo op, um, a photo op visit by him uh, to the Holocaust Museum. The idea was that photos of him mournfully looking at exhibits of dead Jews would make live Jews feel that he understood their pain. 
and understood the security concerns of the Jewish state, which was created in part as a haven for Jews in the wake of the Holocaust. Seeing such photos, and perhaps seeing Arafat lay a wreath at the museum's eternal flame, which rises above a plinth containing soil from ghettos and death camps, Jews who had become increasingly dismayed by the suicide bombings that were spreading across Israel and killing scores of Israelis, and who were growing ever more convinced that Arafat wouldn't stop those bombings, or had a hand even in uh, spawning them, might reverse their distrust and come to believe that Arafat really did care about Jewish suffering and could be trusted to make a deal that would ensure the secure Israel. That invitation to Arafat was a breathtakingly and daringly manipulative act. The officials who made it were Jews on the White House's Middle East Peace Team, who were simultaneously members of the Holocaust Museum's Board of Trustees, which is known as the United States Holocaust Memorial Council. They'd been named to the council by President Clinton and also worked for him, officially. And oddly enough, were named uh, to the council as private members. There are 55 private members, people from the general public, and then there are public members uh, who are officials, uh, five named by the Senate, five named by the House, and I believe three from various departments of government. They were not from those public, but they were from the private group. Probably, I have a feeling that's illegal. Um, these officials, certainly inappropriate, these officials saw the visit as a way to advance their diplomatic agenda, which happened to be the Middle East Peace Process, as it's called, and one of them used his membership to convince the council's chairman to approve of the invitation, and the chairman complied. I was then the museum's director, and I know a little bit about this story from the inside. As soon as I learned of the invitation, I objected that it would be an exploitation of the memory of the Holocaust dead to misuse the museum for the purpose of swaying public opinion. The visit I pointed out would be a follow-up with the museum being used as a prop. I added that there was no evidence that Arafat wanted to understand the Holocaust. After all, he'd been invited to he had already been invited before that um, to visit Yad Vashem. He was living in Gaza, a 15-minute helicopter ride away. Um, and uh, it's an educational museum every bit as educational as the Holocaust Museum in Washington, and he hadn't gone even though uh, it would have been easy for him to get there. Besides, uh, I said, this is an effort to use the Holocaust Museum as a ritual path, uh, known to those who understand Hebrew as a mikvah. Um, this week it will be Arafat, so next week it will be Milosevich. Remember Milosevich? gone now, but at that time he wasn't gone. Um, I was worried about not only the, the uh, event itself, but also the precedent of using the Holocaust Museum as a place where people with blood in their hands could be washed. In response to my objections, Arafat was disinvited. Soon enough, pressures for a re-invitation were applied by the Clinton administration. Not only were calls made to the chairman of the museum's board, that's the one who approved of this invitation. But Secretary of State Madeleine Albright said on NBC's Meet the Press 
that it was, in her words, quote, too bad that the invitation had been withdrawn and that it would have been appropriate for him to visit the museum as a VIP. Following this and other political pressures, and reportedly fearful that he would lose his job, there was a lot of speculation of that at the time in the Washington Post, the chairman then re-invited Arafat going to the Palestinian leader's hotel room to do so. After he left the hotel, he told reporters that he had invited Arafat, quote, with joy in my heart. As it happens, he failed to tell me that he would do so. At a meeting of the Holocaust Council's executive committee, one after another council member asked me to escort Arafat through the museum and even stand there as he would lay a wreath before the museum to turn a flame, and each time I refused. On the day that Arafat was supposed to come to the museum, though, he canceled the visit. The Monica Lewinsky scandal had broken, and Washington's press corps and photographers were at the White House covering it. The opportunity for photos and for swaying public opinion through them was gone. Soon after that, I resigned as the museum's director, writing to the board chairman that I differed with him, quote, on the use of the museum and of the memory of the Holocaust in the context of political and diplomatic circumstances or negotiations. There was there were some at the, and this is this is for me the most important aspect of all this. There were some um, at the time of the original invitation and re-invitation, some in the American Jewish community and on the museum's parent body, its board of trustees, the council, who desperately wanted to believe that the visit had not been staged as a photo op, that Arafat really wanted to understand the Holocaust, and that the museum was an educational institution of such great power that Arafat would be building a changed man. But anyone who thinks so now, following Arafat's pullout from the visit, when it was clear that photographers wouldn't be there to cover it. Following his failure to respond to Yabashem's invitations, which, by the way, flowed out immediately after this event, during the event as it was unfolding yet again, and following repeated denials in Palestinian authority publications that the Holocaust ever happened, is simply reinventing history for polemical reasons. Interestingly, last year, the head of the PLO mission to the United States, there is a PLO mission, by the way, to the United States, um, Afif Safia actually argued in a letter to the Washington Post that Arafat had had a, quote, strong desire, close quote, to visit the museum. Maybe enough time had passed that he thought everyone forgot what happened, and that he could revise the tortured history of this episode, manipulating the Holocaust to serve his own needs. Who knows? Maybe he actually believes that, that, that that's how it happened. Clearly, it's important to remember what really did happen, not only to protect the integrity of history, but also to recall how even those who are entrusted with the task of preserving Holocaust memory can use that memory to advance political and diplomatic ends. Um, let me address now one other theme, which is the promotion of Holocaust memory as a means to demonstrate that one isn't against Israel or that anti-Zionism isn't anti-Semitism. On several occasions, the promotion uh, of Holocaust memory has been used uh, for this purpose. 
um, when in the late 1970s, just to focus on two cases, very, very briefly, President Jimmy Carter got into trouble with the American Jewish community because he sold weapon systems to Saudi Arabia, F-15s, AWACS, uh, systems that could be used against the Jewish state. His advisors suggested that he establish a commission to study ways of, of commemorating the Holocaust. Establishing such a commission would, they felt, mollify the anger toward him among some American Jews, many. In fact, that was the origin of the United States Holocaust Memorial uh, Commission, which eventually recommended the creation of a permanent United States Holocaust Memorial Council, as well as the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, the Annual Days of Remembrance. Um, it turns out that Jimmy Carter didn't seem pleased by this outcome. Moreover, how all this happened is a long story, and it's been documented by others. Um, anyone wants to read more about it can read, for example, uh, Linenthal's Preserving the Memory, uh, in which is covered to some extent. What's relevant to the theme of this lecture, though, is that what some might consider to have been a great act of memory was, one could argue, fundamentally a great act, or maybe a small act, of politics. Interestingly, at a White House reception for rabbis that was called to celebrate the creation of a Holocaust remembrance body, one of those rabbis, who happens to have been a prepper, um, when he reached Carter on the receiving line, went to the political heart of the matter by saying to him, Mr. President, don't give us the Holocaust at the expense of Israel. Um, I think he was prescient uh, back in 1978. Um, Hulk, I mean, Carl was not amused. I can report you. And in a current case, separate case, the United Nations, which has been identified repeatedly as being rapidly and obsessively anti-Israel, has sponsored Holocaust commem commemorations, uh, though, and, uh, and they've also sponsored a Holocaust exhibition. Apparently, they're planning, they're planning yet another one. Many, including some Holocaust survivors, have been pleased by the recognition on the part of the UN Holocaust memory. Others, who are more wary of that organization, have suspected, at least to some extent, um, uh, that such commemorations and exhibitions, which have been far less prominent than have been the organization's unrelenting attacks against Israel, have been mounted primarily to demonstrate that even if the organization is anti-violence, it isn't anti-Semitic. Critics of the UN's behavior toward Israel have noted that it costs little to commemorate dead Jews, but it's potentially deadly to demonize, castigate, and excoriate the Jewish state. Um, and let me focus now on uh, the use of the Holocaust epithet um, as a weapon against the country of the victims of the Holocaust, namely Israel. Uh, we know, of course, that there's a massive Holocaust denial industry in the Arab and Muslim world. 
After all, Israel is seen as a product of that Holocaust as having been created on the basis of the justification of the Jews, and the wake of the Holocaust needed a homeland in which they could defend themselves. What easier way is there to undercut that justification, especially if you want to end that existence, than by denying that the Holocaust ever happened? That it was invented by the Jews in order to steal Muslim and Arab land. Everyone here in this room knows the claims by Ahmadinejad that the Holocaust was a myth. But I could spend hours at home reading to you similar claims by Muslim clerics and leaders saying the same thing. Ironically, though, even as many Muslim figures insist that the Holocaust never happened, many others, together with their supporters in the West, find it convenient to hurl the epithet Nazi at Israel because of the excoriating power of that term. For example, former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon was regularly called a Nazi mass murderer in the Palestinian and other Arab and Muslim press. And on a recent Palestinian TV program, Children's Play was shown depicting Israelis, quote, who did the Holocaust, close quote, by burning Palestinian children in ovens. They don't seem to get this idea that actually what happened was Jews were gassed uh, and burned only after they were dead. Um, but the epithet Nazi and Nazi imagery are also regularly hurled at Israel by European newspapers, editorialists, cartoonists, prominent writers. Many of, the, uh, many of these examples of this are, are well known. Um, in 2001, the Spanish newspaper Altaïs published a cartoon showing a small figure carrying a rectangular mustache flying toward Sharon's upper lip. The caption read, Cleo. The Muse of History puts Hitler's mustache, Ariel Shalom. Two days later, another Spanish newspaper, La Vanguardia, printed a cartoon showing a building with a sign that read, quote, Museum of the Jewish Holocaust. Next to that building was another one still being built with a sign, Future Museum of the Palestinian Holocaust. In June of 2001, three days after a Palestinian suicide bomber killed 21 Israelis at a disco, and wounded a hundred others. Yet another Spanish daily published a cartoon depicting Ariel Sharon with a hook nose and sporting a swastika with a star of David saying, quote, at least Hitler taught me how to invade a country and destroy every living insect. And I can go on and on. Quotes from cartoons, from famous writers, from, Nobel, from a Nobel Prize winner, comparing Ramallah to the Warsaw Ghetto, um, Janine to, to, to the Holocaust, actually it was Janine that was compared to the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, from all over the world. And the animus toward Israel and Europe is growing ever stronger, with the Nazi epithet being hurled there with particular venom and frequency during uh, the recent war between Israel and Hezbollah in Lebanon. Why? is the Nazi epithet used against Israel. It's used because it's effective. And it's effective with Israel because it instantly and ingeniously and effectively turns what usually, uh, what are usually seen as history's victims, those who burden everyone by asking them to remember the Holocaust into history's persecutors, especially if that alleged persecution is used to justify the existence of a country that is seen as having caused the victimization of others. 
Finally, I want to address um, Holocaust denial as ideology, as strategy, and as an instrument of foreign policy. Ironically, but inevitably, even as the claim is being made that the current day Holocaust uh, uh, is being carried out by the Israelis, the claim is also being made in the same countries that the Holocaust never happened, and it's on this theme that I'd like to end the talk. Um, the most active current arena for Holocaust denial is, of course, Iran. And uh, uh, the president of Iran has made question the Holocaust pillar of his presidency, even as a miniseries has been presented on Iranian TV about an Iranian diplomat who rescued Jews in France during the Holocaust. It's illogical, but never mind logic. The claim that the Holocaust never happened has been made throughout the 60 years since the Holocaust ended, both in Europe and the US. It's been made by anti-Semites who wanted to accomplish two things. First, they wanted to discredit the fact that the most discredited, that, that has most discredited anti-Semitism, um, uh, that it can lead to, to the mass murder of Jews. For 60 years, the Holocaust gave anti-Semitism a bad name. They wanted to erase that bad name by trying to convince the public that the Holocaust was a big lie. And they wanted to do that so that it would be acceptable once again to be anti-Semitic. Anti In addition, the Holocaust deniers have wanted to discredit the Jews. Not only are the Jews evil people, they're evil people who made up tall tales in order to extort things from the world. Or do they want to extort sympathy, money, in the form of Holocaust reparations, and legitimacy for the state of Israel? Um, as I've said until recently, uh, most of this took place in Europe, uh, but the arena where it's taking place most actively now is in the Arab Muslim world. Uh, I don't need to rehearse for you. I think most of you probably know uh, many of the Details of this. I'll just touch on a few examples. Um, for a number of years, anti-Semitic screeds, movies, and cartoons have been a staple in, in Arab and Iranian media. The forgery claiming a Jewish plot to take over the world, the protocols of the elders of Zion, as well as Hitler's Mein Kampf, are commonly sold in bookstores across the Middle East. TV shows beam to millions, showing <coughs> Jews murdering non-Jewish children so that they can use their blood in baking matzahs. Jews are portrayed as poisoning Arab children, spreading AIDS, and even piloting the airlines that destroyed the World Trade Center. The newspapers and TV channels in which much of this anti-Semitic material appears um, include those owned by governments, even the government of Egypt, which maintains a peace, a cold peace, still a peace with Israel. Anti-Semitism has become increasingly virulent. Not only are Jews accused of being evil, increasingly arguments are being made that they should be killed. Anti-Semitism in the Arab Muslim world is becoming ever more commonly eliminations. At the same time, the media in Arab countries and in Iran have focused ever more on Holocaust denial. At first, the most common Holocaust-related theme in the Muslim world was the position that the world must be grateful for Hitler's achievement in ridding Europe of its Jews. 
Um, the Egyptian government newspaper Al-Akbar, for example, the columnist uh, Ahmed Ragab wrote, give thanks to Hitler. He took revenge on the Israelis and advanced on behalf of the Palestinians. Our one complaint against him was that his revenge was not complete enough. Increasingly, however, the tack has become that Hitler didn't finish the job, but that he never started. That was heard as far back as the 1970s, but it's become especially common in recent years as Holocaust denial has become especially uh, uh, prevalent. I won't give you the examples that I have here in my paper of this. There are legions of them. Uh, again and again, uh, there are statements that never happened. And the pace of these statements, the pace of Holocaust denial, uh, increased markedly uh, during the past few years in Iran. Uh, and nothing in what uh, Ahmadinejad said during his visit uh, to, to the UN and to New York uh, in the, in the last month um, has uh, taken any of that back. In fact, the story that Ahmadinejad is trying to sell it's clear, the Holocaust is a story that was invented by Jews in order to make Westerners, and especially Europeans, feel guilty so that they would give the Jews both money and the country. Europeans who controlled the Middle East believed the story, and to expiate their false guilt, gave them that money in the form of reparations and created Israel, where Jews, according to this belief, had never lived. In the process, it was stolen from the Palestinians, was a result of experience a real Holocaust. It's now necessary to show that the Holocaust never happened, and that will justify eliminating it, it not the Holocaust, but Israel itself. Given the mountain of evidence the Holocaust happened exactly as most of us in the world know it happened, and that six million Jews were murdered in it, Ahmadinejad's belief seems absurd, but it's also dangerous. This is the same Ahmadinejad whose government is building nuclear installations that are clearly aimed at creating nuclear weapons. Anybody who actually believes that wants to create something, uh, create them for the purpose of having an energy source uh, instead of oil, uh, that person got a, a degree in international affairs that have to revoked. Um, uh, this is the same Ahmadinejad who has assured the true believers that not only will Israel be destroyed, but that the Muslim world will destroy it. It's distressing to end this presentation on so chilling and depressing a note. But the most chilling dimension of all this is that this prospect, the prospect that in fact this project of Ahmadinejad's and actually Rafsanjani's, um, another leader in Iran, um, could really be successful. And there could really be another Holocaust. There are six million Jews currently living uh, in Israel. As I said at the outset, um, any aspect of the study of the Holocaust and the use and abuse of Holocaust memory is a direct bearing on the consideration of anti-Semitism in general, which is after all the theme uh, of this program. 
So let me just let me just summarize what I've addressed. Um, I've discussed how the Holocaust, an event that Jews hope, at least as lessons that can be taught, is an event whose most bracing lesson, never again, has been piously cited by foreign policymakers, but sadly, when that lesson has really been applicable, has been rarely observed. Have observed. I've discussed how the symbols and memory of the Holocaust have been misused as a prop to pursue diplomatic ends, illuminating the vulnerability of Holocaust memory to abuse. I've discussed how Holocaust commemorations have served to deflect the criticism that a government or an international organization is harming Israel or is actually anti-Semitic. I've discussed how references to the Holocaust have become a weapon to be used by anti-Semites against the very state that rose out of its ashes. And finally, I've discussed the Holocaust as an event that's being denied by the president of one country who is racing to create the weapons that in a terrible nightmare could, one could, that one could easily envision could result in yet another Holocaust. I'll stop um, after this not altogether happy uh, litany of the misuses of Holocaust memory and political and international affairs, um, and we'll be happy, grateful for any questions, any comments, any disagreements, uh, or any implications that you may have. Thanks.
And I find it fascinating. Maybe you can touch on it in terms of the international relations, but also from your background in psychiatry. When Ahmadinejad was at Columbia, he mentioned that there's no gay people in Iran. The entire audience, I think, very naturally reacted. They laughed and they were aghast, and rightfully so. Um, and I think, in a sense, it's consistent with an Islamist worldview that this just doesn't happen in a proper Islamic society. And yet, when it comes to anti-Semitism, to the annihilation of Jews, to the removal of Israel, people seem incapacitated to even guess. Why? Wow. Uh, you know, after every sentence of your of your question, uh, your statement, or, well, I don't know what to call it. Um, uh, I had an answer, and I had to cut it off until the next question. I had another answer. That, uh, I love that. I love that comment about denial isn't isn't just from Egypt. Uh, uh, actually, in classic psychoanalysis, it's also considered a mechanism of defense, um, and it's used in a variety of ways. Um, the issue of, I mean, you raised, you raised a huge number of questions, and the, I understand that the real question, the most important question, which I'll get to in a second, has to do with, uh, given this uh, impetus on the part of Iran's open impetus to eliminate Israel. Uh, why uh, isn't there a justification here for um, responding to it using legal means, using already existing charges, <coughs> international agreements, using uh, whatever um, uh, mechanism, formal or informal, um, that can be summoned up and. I would support any and all of those. Uh, because I think the threat is real, I think the threat is great, and I think that it is one of the many threats that face the very existence of the state, uh, but it's the most immediate one. There are others that are almost immediate, but this is the most, I believe, the most immediate. Uh, you know, a, th a death by a thousand Katyushas is one kind of threat. This is a you know, death by a single bomb. And uh, we have to take it extremely seriously, and it isn't just a threat against Israel, it's a threat against uh, not only the entire region, given the proliferation of uh, uh, missile technology, it's a threat against Europe, could well be even a threat against the United States. Um, but I'll get back to that. Don't take that um, uh, I was slightly struck by the reception of Ahmadinejad uh, at Columbia, I was struck um, by um, by the rationales that were offered, by the arguments that were raised, by the justifications that were given for his presentation. And I was personally struck uh, because I remembered that when I was an undergraduate at Columbia um, in the 1960s. I'm very interested. I remember if I was, I, believe it or not, I studied philosophy at Columbia. Um, uh, I remember that there was a student group 
that invited George Lincoln Rockwell to speak there. And George Lincoln Rockwell, for those of you who were born, were not of a certain age, should uh, know that uh, George Lincoln Rockwell was the head of the American Nazi Party during the 1960s, would strut around in a brown uniform and wanted to finish the job that Hitler had started. And some group, uh, it was called Humanitas actually, a uh, student group, uh, invited him uh, to speak. And uh, I was uh, then, as I am now, very much in favor of free speech. But I just wanted to know what they were thinking. Uh, and I asked for a meeting with the head of this group and one of the deans. Uh, there was a professor who came, I came, and I turned to this guy, the head of the group, and I said, well, what were you thinking? There are a million crooks in America. There are all kinds of people you could have invited. If you wanted to create a ruckus, you could have invited somebody else. Why did you invite some? You have a right to invite, nobody is disputing that, but why did you choose to do so? Um, and his only answer was freedom of speech. I think there's a difference between freedom of speech and foolishness of invitation. And uh, every time there is an invitation, one is not obliged to invite everybody. If you, if, you, if you were obliged, if every university were, were obliged to invite everybody at all times, universities would be filled with, uh, all their classrooms would be filled with speakers with no audiences listening to people ranting about this or that. To be sure, Rafsanjani was the head of the state uh, of, of a particular country with a very, shall we say, controversial position. Still, Columbia was not obliged. Uh, and when the invitation came in, Bollinger, the president of Columbia, was asked to pass on the uh, It was an inquiry. And he was asked to pass on it, and he approved, and therefore he, in the name of Columbia, invited him, so he was invited. I think that was a mistake, a mistake that was not, um, that was not uh, erased by the comments that Bollinger made. Um, and, uh, uh, and I was strongly opposed to it. Uh, and in fact, believe that it was analogous, his visit, not to Columbia, but to the World Trade Center site, which he tried to do, was analogous to the Arafat visit, or non-visit, to the uh, Holocaust Museum. And that what he wanted to do was, was, was improve his image. And it would have been a photo op to improve his image in that state to see I'm laying the wreath in this hallowed place. Um, just to go back to the Brooklyn and Rockwell visit for a second, to, sh to, to show sort of the kind of farce it was, on the day he was supposed to come, sort of like Monica Lewinsky, the day he was supposed to come, he didn't show up. There were people, students marching around with signs saying, we don't want to, s remember this is before, this is before the, the 1968 riot, the riots when people became highly politicized, just before that year or two before that. People walking around with signs saying, protesting the visit of, of Norman Rockwell. <laughs> it was a farce. 
of any kind. Uh, but focusing on the non-farcical aspects of it, I really do believe that uh, uh, people like Ahmadinejad, uh, who have their power because they achieve it within their states, and therefore they have power. They simply have power. They're, he is the president of his country. He's not the supreme leader. So we all know the actual leader, the supreme leader, it is somebody who's not democratically elected. Uh, but he is the, um, the highest elected government official in the country. Um, and he speaks for his country, and he has a vast executive power. He's not, there are counterparts within the country. Uh, but there are countercurrents in every country. Um, we sort of fasten upon those countercurrents and hope that they're going to uh, win, uh, but um, hope is not a substitute for reality. Uh, ultimately, he and the Supreme Leader and others in his party um, will have their fingers on the trigger of something that they're trying to create. Uh, I do think that there is a role justification for uh, pursuing any means possible to, um, to uh, bring him before some sort of court. Uh, the reality is that it, it won't do much good, I think, but uh, in, in practical terms, but I think in moral and political terms, it will do good. And those terms are pretty important. And I, I support your, what I believe to be your, your idea of doing so. My very long answer to your almost small question. <laughs> well, I've loved listening to you. I could listen to you forever, and I'm happy to have this too. But, um, the question I had is to what extent do you see, from, from the perspective, what happened in Turkey with the Armenians a century ago as a precursor or a model of genocide or the Holocaust? And if you see any parallels, then to what extent do you see the current dance with Turkey by the U.S., by Israel, for a while by the ADL, to try and make nice to Turkey right. as interacting with the concept of Holocaust minimization of denial? Thanks, Dan. I just want you to know that Dan is a co-author of a book that we and two other shrinks wrote. <laughs> um, when we, were, we found ourselves in Heidelberg, all jet-lagged, and he was, Dan was about to give a talk on, uh, on uh, the neurobiology of, of diurnal rhythms and uh, the stuff that goes on in the brain that uh, part of which controls results in jet lag. And I said, Dan, you want to write a book on this? He said, no, I won't write it without you. But he, he was then at the NIH. Uh, I guess I was as well. And uh, it ended up in the usual NIH matter, which is your lab chief then collaborates with your lab chief's lab chief then collaborates. So four shrinks ended up writing a book that was shrimp wrap <laughs> because it contained an uh, eye mask which was necessary to control the production of melatonin. I know you didn't want me to bring this up, but uh, um, it was, it's true. It was better than playing poker. Better than playing poker. We wrote it real fast, didn't we? Um, the, uh, the Armenian-Turkish uh, example, which we are going through right now, uh, was in, is in fact 
constitutes three pages of this thing that I wrote that he didn't touch upon. And it's quite apt, I think, because it's an example of um, politics trumping history. Um, in this case, uh, uh, many decades old history, uh, politics trumping memory. Uh, in the end, as anybody who reads the papers knows, uh, the House Committee, the relevant House Committee, passed a uh, resolution. Um, condemning the Armenian Genocide, and it was uh, all set to pass the House. Uh, it had many, many co-sponsors enough to pass it, uh, and then Turkey said, uh, if you uh, pass it, uh, goodbye to the use of Intralic uh, Air Base in southern and eastern Turkey, uh, through which 75% of our War effort material go, goes uh, on its way to Iraq, uh, and pretty soon even co-sponsors said the same in the past, uh, because not because of historical reality, but because of um, political realities. Uh, I have a wonderful quote here from John Murphy, who said. Um, if I can find it, just a couple of days ago, he said uh, he urged the speaker to keep the resolution from the floor. Quote, the point is we have to deal with today's world. Um, so, so the uh, act of ignoring uh, the so-called post-Holocaust lesson of never again, though it's most pernicious, with regard to ongoing new genocides, uh, also uh, has a retroactive dimension to it. Um, not as important because nobody knew was being killed, but it is important to the Armenian community. And so I do think it is resonant. I do think it is important. Uh, plays a role here. Thanks, Dan. In reference to your last answer, you talked about uh, taking Akhavija in front of court. I mean, what I'm trying to wrap my head around that issue. I mean, how, how would that be? Where's the court? I think this is a challenge to answer that. Okay. The UN Convention on the Punishment and Prevention of Genocide it spells out the process to arrest somebody guilty of genocide are also people who are inciting genocide. There's a whole process that the UN is supposed to enforce. And countries that sign this, this convention, which the United States and almost every nation that belongs to the UN has signed, they're supposed to actually be the, they're responsible for arresting people who do this. So there's a whole process that actually exists. But that's a, that's, that's I don't want to get on this. She was treated as a visiting dignitary. And you're saying we should have just put him in, in a lockup? Yes, according to the UN and then international law. Should we I could have. Should Actually, what is being alluded to here is really not 
so much denial in the Holocaust. Because denial implies a certain energy, <coughs> fighting an idea. I'm more concerned about the issue of apathy. That 60 years after the Holocaust, what happens to any event is it gets stripped of its emotional connections. And I'm not even so concerned, even for the outside world, but even among Jews. And one of the questions that I had was, how does one then transmit this as an emotional, powerful lesson? The Jews do this with you, you know, with the destruction of the temple they set up up, they Tishmah, so that someone would artificially create a mourning. But the Holocaust isn't even wrapped into that. Or if it is, it's done in such a minimal way. So there's a concern that not only the non-Jews will begin to forget the Holocaust, but Jews will see it as a little piece of history that has taken place. And not the emotion, you know, when you say it and I say it, we have an emotional connection to it because we remember. Two generations later, people don't remember anything. They just read about it twice and they heard it in the Hebrew school class. So why get so worked up about it is what most people think. So one of the questions is, how does one educate in an emotional sense both Jews and non Jews? So just a great question. It is a great question. It's a massively important question. And it's a question, uh, as you say, focused largely uh, or most directly uh, on uh, the Jewish um, the, uh There is a phrase that's been from time to time used during the past couple of past few years. Uh, which is a little chilling, but actually, I think, in many arenas, quite accurate, which is, that phrase is Holocaust fatigue. People are tired. Uh, you know, for a couple of decades, uh, three or so, uh, nobody wanted to talk about the Holocaust, uh, including Jews, for reasons that it's not, we don't have time to get into here and that are in many cases speculative. Um, and then there was the Holocaust miniseries that appeared on television in the 70s, and then the great growth of interest in it. The Holocaust survivors started talking, people started focusing on it, eventually Jimmy Carter was persuaded that Jews would stop being mad if he created these councils and museums, kicking and screaming as he was. Um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, this is an aside, piece of paper in the National Archives. And I hope I remember this correctly, but uh, this is a mar marginalian Carter's, Carter's uh, handwriting in which he writes his proposal to name uh, various members to the Holocaust, I think it was council, and they were Jews, and he said, and he wanted to Ukrainians and Latvians. He said, more Euro-ethnics, more democratic voters. Um, the, 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 uh, there was a spurt, a massive growth, actually, of interest in the Holocaust 
resulting in the Holocaust Museum and a couple million people go there every year and do learn some important things in visiting uh, that place. Uh, but recently, uh, it's been said that there's been sort of Holocaust fatigue. The New York Times publishes less and less on the subject. The New York Times Book Review reviews less and less on the subject. Uh, um, I don't think it's accidental. Within the Jewish community, uh, there have been a number of voices, uh, especially rabbinical voices, that have said uh, that the Shoah uh, has to be, is at least as important, if not more important, and personally I think it's more important uh, within Jewish history uh, than anything that happened in Jewish history, including the destruction of the two temples, um, and possibly even, possibly even uh, the uh, memory or centrality of the Exodus itself. Um, and yet, we have uh, in the Jewish tradition rituals that um, evoke very clearly and repeatedly uh, those events, but nothing except for some synagogues saying a prayer in memory of, of the Shabbat day during, uh, during the Yisker. Um, so a number of rabbinical authorities have said, let's, let's put in some kind of ritual. Uh, and I must say that it has not taken so far. Uh, and I must say also that uh, I'm inclined to fear that over the decades, uh, the Holocaust, which was after all the worst of Rome, that one can call it that, um, that the Jews ever experienced, will become yet another bad pogrom, uh, but will receive, um, to some extent, an importance compared with the, with the uh, role it plays now uh, in our lives. I say this sadly, but I can't agree with I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, why do institutions like Columbia University and other Ivy colleges invite people like Ahmed Danjad or Rufinus Walker? And when I doubt that they would invite um, an obvious cook from the white supremacists or um, somebody from the Ku Klux Klan, why do they provide someone like uh, a platform to legitimize his, um, his belief system or his intentions? And my second question is, again, connected to Damajal. Uh, uh, how do you explain that the contemporary Germany uh, is the largest trading partner with Iran, and was during the Nazi regime and even though they claims to be business that rules uh, 
their behavior. And unless there are strong enough reasons of a different nature to, uh, to stop that kind of business, it continues. So if it's good, good business, it obviously is good business to be in a country that has such second largest proven oil reserves in the world, uh, I believe. Um, then you do business with it. Um, and, and there are not enough stops to stop that. Um, the question of why Dijak was uh, chosen, uh, was asked, was invited, uh, whereas others are not, um, who advocate similarly despicable uh, positions, um, is a question related to the large, large question of um, I think, to, to some extent, the nature of uh, any thoughts that exists um, on American campuses. Um, and it's very, very complex. Uh, we all know that uh, somebody who advocates the despicable view that, uh, let's say, um, uh, an entire group, not Jews, we're not Israel, should be eradicated. Uh, we'd never get a hearing on an American campus. Um, the, the, the week, I think it was the week before Ahmadinejad was turned down, yet another person was turned down in Colombia. I mean, the week before Ahmadinejad came to Colombia, another person was turned down, was disinvited, who was a member of this Minuteman project that advocates building a fence. Um, across the southern border uh, of the United States with Mexico. And in California, UC Davis, um, Lawrence Summers, former president of uh, Harvard, who was, uh, uh, as everybody here probably knows, um, dismissed. Uh, it's quite exciting. <laughs> dismissed. dismissed uh, forced to resign. Uh, because he expressed certain views that were considered anti-female, anti-woman, um, uh, was actually disinvited from UC Davis when professors rose in, in protest. Um, so there are certain kinds of people who are not, in, who are disinvited or not invited, and there are certain kinds of people for whom the sanctions against inviting don't hold. And uh, it's a large question having to do, I think, with the culture of American campuses and American political, political discussion, especially on campuses. Uh, and more than that, I don't think this is a place to, to discuss that. I'm just curious, and you're mentioning about the Holocaust Museum and artifacts Were Madame Wilbur, Dennis Ross, and Ann Miller behind the pressure that happened? Yes, yes, yes. Three Jews. Yeah, Madame Wilbur, probably after the fact, but yes. Uh, which order did you mention them? 
Right, yeah. Dennis, what's the Aaron Miller? Yeah, in reverse order, those that was here. Is Aaron Miller on the board? Yes. On the executive committee. Both of them are on the board. So on behalf of ESA, thank you very much for coming here. Thank you. Um, at 7 p.m., Hillel Newer is the director of UN Watch in Geneva.